The following program is brought to you by your friends at Podcast One. Pros like you know trusted brands have a hand in helping you nail the job. Start with Lowe's where you'll find those brands and savings too. Stop in today and pick up a new Metabo HPT 1 and 3 quarter inch 15 degree pneumatic roofing nailer for 20 bucks less. Now $269. And get a new Dewalt Tough Grip 52 piece steel hex shank screwdriver bit set for just $14.98 saving you 5 bucks. For even more ways Lowe's saves your business money stop by the pro desk and talk to our dedicated pro team today. Whatever you need to get the job done do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offers valid through 11-6 US only. Robinhood is an investing app that lets you buy and sell stocks, ETFs, options, and cryptos, all commission-free. And they strive to make financial services work for everyone, not just the wealthy. It's a non-intimidating way for stock market newcomers to invest for the first time with true confidence. It's simple. It's intuitive. It has a clear design, and the data is presented in an easy-to-digest way. There's no commission fees at all. Other brokerages charge up to $10 for every trade, but Robinhood doesn't charge commission fees, trade stocks, and keep all of your profits. And you can learn by doing. Learn how to invest as you build your portfolio. You can discover new stocks and track favorite companies with this personalized news feed. And custom notifications for price movements will happen so that you never miss the right moment to invest. Robinhood is giving listeners free stock like Apple, Ford, or Sprint to help you build your portfolio. So sign up now at taffer.robinhood.com. That's taffer.robinhood.com. This is No Excuses with John Taffer. I'm John Taffer, best-selling author, bar rescue guru, and soon your new best friend. I've got a lot of shit for us to talk about, so stop making excuses and let's get started because this gets real right now. All the way from the studios at Podcast One, here's John Taffer. Well, here we are, November 20th, Thanksgiving week. And it's another episode of my No Excuses podcast. Before we even get going, make sure you hit subscribe at Apple Podcast or go to podcastone.com or the Podcast One app, and you'll get your new episodes automatically every Tuesday. Good deal, right? So this week, Casey, I got one of my favorite people as my guest. I got Sway Calloway with me this week. I've been on Sway's radio show a bunch of times. We've become very good friends the past few years. Oh, yeah. Sway has a really inspirational story about how he became Sway, that, that he doesn't talk about that often, but I'm going to sort of corner him and get it out of him today. We also got six callers. Uh, we got callers from Missouri, California, Texas, Illinois, and New Mexico. And before we even get going, I got to thank my sponsors, Casey, because we wouldn't be here without them. So a big thanks to BetDSI, MyPillow, Quicken Loans, Robinhood Investing App, and TrueCar. So... Before we get into talking with uh, Sway, there's a lot going on this past week or so, don't you think? Oh, yeah. So after the election and looking at the counts in Florida and hate and people not conceding and then unconceding and saying they won when they didn't, and you know, it doesn't matter what side of the fence you're on. It, it's, it's almost like sitting back and watching a freaking movie, Casey. There's moments these days... And I'm a little older than some of you, but there's moments these days when I say to myself, this could just never have even been conceived years ago. So I thought to myself, who are the craziest people that have been elected? 
And I sort of went online, right, because we all have people that have been elected no matter what side of the fence we're on that we just can't believe this person got elected. And, and again, both sides would find those people. So I had a couple of interesting ones. So, so uh, 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 here's a few interesting ones. Uh, Bosco the dog <laughs> was the mayor of Sunel, California for almost 20 years. Stubbs, who was a cat, was the mayor of Takitna, Alaska. There's a bunch of them. So, so uh, 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 <laughs> Duke the dog won an election and became the new mayor of Cormanent, Minnesota. And he was that mayor for eight years. In July 2018, KC, this is not long ago, a cat named Sweet Tart won the title of mayor of Omina, Michigan. And she's on her second term, by the way. I just thought I'd mention that. Pegasus, the immortal, was a boar hog that the Yippies nominated to the U.S. presidential election in 1968. It goes on and on. There's a cat named Morris, who's the mayor in Mexico. Uh, there's another mayor in New Zealand who's a dog. There's a bad-tempered chimpanzee who's a mayor in Brazil. So, guys, look at all of our politicians. And when you hear those stories, just keep in mind they have two legs, not four legs, Casey, right? That's a step in the right direction. It's been, correct? It's been a, it's been a bit of a circus lately, too. So, But, but they do have two legs, not four legs. Yes. That's a good thing. They can read. They can write. At least we think most of them can. They're not going to beg for treats all day long. That's a good thing, right? So, so, and a milk bone is not going to get a bill signed. So I think that, that when we look at the humor of what Americans do sometimes in elections, maybe we can all take a deep breath and realize whatever happened in this election, if you hate it, uh, uh, you know what? Life will go on. And we survive these things. And all of us these past 20 years have had a president we didn't like or somebody we didn't like. But, Casey, we always survive it, don't we? Yeah, and there'll be another election. And, and correct. And we'll change again. But the point is we survive this stuff. So if, if a dog can be elected mayor and be reelected, maybe we all need to take a deep breath. <laughs> but uh, uh, anyway, it's nice that all this election stuff is behind us. So. I want to tell a quick story. I'm reading an article about a grandma whose first try at a lottery game wins her a huge jackpot. And this woman goes, and she's never played the lottery before, and she chose the numbers 3794. Three, and she placed a $2 trifecta bet at a racetrack at a virtual horse racing game, and she won $10,400. Good for her. Many years ago, KC, I went down to Dania, Florida with a friend of mine, and he wanted me to go see Highline. So I went to Highline, and it's a game where they have that scoop, that sort of wicker scoop, and they throw the ball against the wall, and it's sort of a, a handballish type of a game. And they have them bunched up where you can bet on them. You can do trifectas and bet on certain number games and certain number players, and it's a betting environment, and it's very unique to Florida, and it's called Highline. So I've never been there, and a friend of mine bets all the time on this Highline, Casey. Well, I went down there. I bet my birthday on the date that I was on that day. So I picked eight, six, or whatever the heck it was, and my birthday, 11, seven, and I trifected it in a box, and I bet $24. I won $8,600. And it was really cool, but Casey, my friend, never spoke to me again. <laughs> <laughs> he was so pissed off 
because apparently he goes there all the time and he never won. He brings me there. I bet $24, win $8,600. They took me in a back room to take the taxes out, right, because they give you a net check. On the drive home, he didn't say a freaking word for me. Our friendship died after that night. He was so pissed off that I won <laughs> that it affected our entire relationship. So, so <laughs> I'll never forget it. When I read that story about that grandma, I thought of that story in Dania Highline. His name was Doug Livingston, and I haven't spoken to him since. And, Doug, I hope finally you won at Dania Highline uh, uh, like I did. So listen to this. In England, edible insects are, like, exploding. And they have dried crickets that are, like, hugely successful and are selling out. And here's what shocked me. 10% of Brits have tried them, and more than half have enjoyed them. So 5% of Britain is eating dried crickets. And supposedly they contain more protein than beef, chicken, or pork. 68 grams of protein per oh, 100 grams compared to 31 <laughs> grams of protein in beef. So I had an idea, Casey. Okay. I thought that we should feed all of our Taliban and ISIS prisoners crickets. So I think if we feed them all crickets, they're getting plenty of protein, and that saves all the steaks for us. What do you think? <laughs> I like it. <laughs> that was a pretty good idea, too. So an 11-year-old boy takes a car for a joyride uh, uh, because his mom took his PlayStation away. So I'm reading this article, and look, I'm a parent, and, and, and you know I know what it's like. And kids can be difficult. My daughter was never anything like this. But this kid took the car because his mother took his PlayStation away and took it above 70 miles an hour and crashed into a parked truck. The kid is now arrested, and he's a juvenile home. But here's what was amazing about the story. It was the second time in 13 months that the kid <laughs> took the family's car for a joyride. And you know, it's, it, the first one was a 50-mile chase on an interstate where he was finally apprehended and charged with felony in juvenile court. So I have a question. Why the hell didn't the parents hide the car keys? <laughs> So the kid still grabs the car keys after a 50-mile chase from the police and uh, goes on another joyride. So you wonder, who's the idiot? The kid? I don't think so. I think in this case, the parents are the idiots, and maybe they should just be arrested for being freaking stupid. What do you think? It's definitely the parents, for sure. <laughs> Jeez. It's like a kid sets the house on fire. So send them to school with a book of matches. You know I mean? <laughs> Okay, so the people from my pillow called me and said, we want to send you some pillows so you can test them. What they don't know is I am a my pillow nutcase. I have four on my bed at home. I have two in my guest room bed, two in the other guest room bed. I have four of the mini ones in my home theater, six of them in my airplane. I actually carry two of them in my wardrobe box when I go on a road for shooting TV. I don't sleep if I'm not on a my pillow. So they didn't need to send me samples. I had already bought them. I wish I would have known. I wouldn't have bought them. I would have taken the free ones. If you don't have a my pillow, I think you're crazy. First of all, it stays cool all night long. No more waking up at 3 a.m. to flip to the cool side of the pillow. It totally keeps its shape. No more reshaping your pillow in the middle of the night. It comes with a money-back guarantee until March 1st. Try it. If you don't like it, you return it. And it comes with a 10-year warranty. Do you have a pillow that comes with a 10-year warranty? I don't think so. You can toss my pillow in your washer and dryer, and it's like new. Try doing that with another pillow and see what happens. And most of all, and this is what I love, it's owned by Mike Lindell, and it's made in America. 
It's just a great American story. Mike invented this thing, created this company in Minnesota, created this pillow, and now he's one of the fastest-growing companies in America for a reason. The darn thing is great. Go to MyPillow.com, click on the Buy One, Get One free special, and use the code TAFFER, and you'll get one free pillow when you buy one at regular price plus shipping. Take advantage of their best offer. Go to MyPillow.com, click on Buy One, Get One free special, and enter the promo code TAFFER. You will be glad you did. My pillows are awesome. This week is Thanksgiving, which is the biggest travel weekend of the year. And I was thinking for my entire life, for the past 35 years, I have traveled millions of miles around the world. And I got million-mile cards from God knows how many airlines. And and I can't tell you how many months or years of my life I've spent in metal tubes and uncomfortable hotel rooms. And I was thinking about the things that happened to me that were some of the worst stories ever. And I jotted a couple down, Casey, that I have to share with you, which is I'm going to call travel hell with Taffer. (laughs) So one time I take a flight, I'm doing a project for Hyatt Hotels, and I take a first class flight in a 747 from Chicago to Hong Kong. The plane takes off and I'm in this very front seat at the point of the plane in first class. It's a seat by yourself. And right after the plane takes off, Casey, up in the top of the plane, there's the top panel where all the lights are, and then there's the side panel that the windows are on. And there's always about an inch space between those two panels. And I guess it's for vent air or whatever. The plane takes off, and I hear this sort of scratching sound above me. And I look up, and the face of a mouse looks down in that crack and (laughs) stares right at me. I I freak out. I call the stewardess over. I say, there's a mouse up there. She looks at me like I'm freaking crazy and and really says that there's no other place to put you. You know, even they're even sold out in the back, so I got to sit there. So now they pull out the vodka and the ice. I have vodka shots. I have dinner. I watch a movie. I can't take my eyes off this thing ahead of me, Casey. I can hear its nails scratching. I'm convinced it's going to come out of there and fall (laughs) on my face. And I feel like an idiot, and I keep complaining about this mouse. And I'm convinced that they think that I am a nutcase. That, you know, how does a mouse get on an airplane? About 11 hours later, this is a 16-hour flight, about 11 hours later, the co-pilot comes up to my seat. The lights are out. The plane is dark, but I'm awake. And he says to me, Mr. Taffer, I said, yes. He goes, you don't have to worry about the mouse. It was just seen in coach. <laughs> and then he told me the story that it was a Chinese mouse with a very pointy snoot. And when they clean the planes in China, they leave the doors open and mouses get in the plane sometimes. And that was my mouse story on the way to Hong Kong. But here's my favorite one of all. Years ago, I'm in Chicago and I'm on my way to Los Angeles to do a hotel project. And O'Hare Airport shuts down, KC. Terrible winter storm. And when O'Hare Airport... When O'Hare Airport shuts down, every hotel room in the city of Chicago becomes occupied in a matter of seconds. You can't get a room. Well, I wasn't quick enough on the phone, so I can't get a room anywhere. And there's this really lousy days in down the street from from, uh, uh, O'Hare, and I can get a room there. So I run into this hotel. The lobby is packed. It's freaking chaos. They don't have a room for me. But I knew the president of the company. His name was Levin. So I'm screaming and yelling, I know him. I'm going to call him, blah, blah, blah. I bet it. So the guy says, I'll get your room. Sit down, Mr. Taffer. I'll get your room. So I sit in the couch. About 20 minutes later, one of the maintenance guys comes up to me and says, Mr. Taffer, we have a room for you. It's a room that was out of, out of service for cleaning, for drug shampoo, but we just, uh, a rug shampoo, but we just put it together. I made the bed. I threw some towels in there. You'll be fine. I said, thank you. So I go into the room. This room is like 10 degrees, Casey. It's a frozen (laughs) concrete cube. 
And obviously the heater hasn't been on in weeks and it's terribly cold. And this is an outside corridor hotel. This room is freaking freezing. Well, I turn the heat on. It's not going to get warmer. So I'm not, I, I try to get into the bed. Uh, I, do, I can't warm up. So I turn the shower on, which is really hot. And I let the shower run to warm the room up. Well, I fall asleep on the bed, Casey, as the shower is running. I wake up in the morning about 8 o'clock, and the room is a freaking cloud. There's water running down the walls. The sheer drapes are now clear because they're so wet. And this room, the carpet is completely wet. This room is a complete disaster. <laughs> so I wake up. I say, holy shit. I, I, I was so cold. I slept in my clothes. I throw my stuff in my bag. I go to open the guest room door, and the door is frozen closed. And it's a band of ice from the steam all night layering out in front of the door. So now I've got my shoe. I'm smashing. I'm using the plastic ice bin. I cannot crack the ice and open the door. I am locked in this room. So I call the front desk. I tell them I'm locked in a room. Engineering comes. They break the freaking door down. The guy walks into the room, sees his room is completely destroyed. I'm now running down the hallway with my suitcases trying to get out of there. And as I'm getting in the elevator, the last thing I heard was, hey, asshole. Hey, asshole. And I got out of the hotel, and that was the story of Chicago. One more, and, I, and these are actually sort of funny ones. I'm in New Zealand giving a speech at a bar convention. 1,200 people were in this room, and Taffer from the U.S., Mr. Bar Industry, is giving a speech. And when they set up the screen, there was this metal bar that was part of the easel of the screen mount sticking out into the stage. Well, I rant and rave when I give speeches. I walk by, I step under this thing, and I hear a snap, and I break my foot. Now I have a broken foot in front of 1,200 people in New Zealand. I mean, I'm so far away. If you dug a hole straight down, that's where I am in New Zealand. So now my foot is broken. I, I, I lay down on the seats in the first row. It's a bar convention. Everybody's bringing me ice. I calm down, take a deep breath, stand up there, and do my three-hour program with a broken foot. When, when the program ended, I went back to my hotel room. Nicole was with me, of course. We had to cut the shoe off my foot because it was so swollen and black. And then for the next two weeks, I spent a VIP tour in New Zealand going to glaciers, going in mountains, uh, uh, and doing amazing things, hopping around with my broken foot. All right, you ready for the final one, the coup de grace <laughs> of travel stories? They get worse? Oh, here's the one. So I'm flying from Detroit to Los Angeles to a dear friend of mine's sister's wedding. And I'm in a wedding party. And we get on a plane in, in Minnesota. And the plane takes off. And it's a 747 or 757, big plane. Plane takes off. And we're not in the air for more than two or three minutes when this incredible stench of garlic comes over the plane. I mean, it's unbearable. Your eyes are tearing from the garlic. You drink your Coke, it tastes like garlic. The crackers taste like garlic. It's unbelievable. So now we're in the air for about 15, 20, 25 minutes, and a pilot comes on the PA system. And he says, I want to apologize for the odor in the plane. We have 60,000 pounds of garlic down below. And there was a, a, a cargo plane that had a mechanical, and we had to bring this garlic, so we apologize. We're going to run the ventilation systems. We hope it will be as comfortable for you as possible. Well, the garlic stunk the entire flight. Now we land in Los Angeles. And the baggage starts coming out on a carousel. And, of course, the minute the bags come out in the carousel, the whole freaking baggage area stinks from garlic. <laughs> so 
Every bag stinks from garlic. We all stink from garlic, and this garlic stench is everywhere. So I go with my friend to his sister's house. We're staying in a house because we're in a wedding party. The minute we walk in, they say, you stink of garlic. So now I got my suit in my suitcase. I open my suitcase. I take out my suit. It stinks from garlic. So we send our suits to the dry cleaner. He dry cleaned them four times to try to get the garlic stench. I now get the suit back. I get dressed for the wedding that morning, and the dry cleaner melted my zipper from dry cleaning it so many times. So I went to the wedding in jeans, wrote a really nasty letter to Northwest Airlines, explaining the entire story. I put hours into this letter. And you know what they did, Casey? They sent me a $25 travel certificate. (laughs) And that was the last time I ever flew Northwest Airlines. Anyway, so those are my travel stories from hell. So I want to hear your travel stories from hell. So next week for audience call-ins, let's have a theme. If any of you have great travel stories from hell, I'd love to hear them next week after the Thanksgiving holiday. And (laughs) that'll make for a little more fun next week. And we have a lot of great callers. So when we come back, I'm going to be with Sway Calloway. Talk to you then. Don't shut down this podcast yet. No Excuses with John Taffer continues next. Want to talk to John? Email him now at podcast at johntaffer.com. Well, another week of NFL and NCAA football is gone, and you've learned a lot more than you knew the week before. So why don't you use some of that pigskin knowledge and take it to the bank with betdsi.com. BetDSI is celebrating 20 years online, and they've built an impeccable reputation for great service and fast payment of your winnings. And to help you get started with some extra bang for your buck, BetDSI is offering double your money on your first deposit. That's right. Deposit your money, and they'll double it up to $2,500 for free. That's double your money right from the get-go. When it comes to football, BetDSI has every wage you could ever imagine. If it's happening, BetDSI will put a line on it. You can bet on the NFL, NCAA football, MLB, NBA, UFC, eSports, NHL, and other global sports, and even bet on politics, celebrities, and reality shows for that matter. You can also bet on games while they're playing with BetDSI's live betting. So join BetDSI today using promo code TAFFER101, and you've already won by doubling your bankroll right out of the gate. So use promo code Taffer 101 to get in the action and get paid. Join BetDSI today. Pros like you know trusted brands have a hand in helping you nail the job. Start with Lowe's where you'll find those brands and savings too. Stop in today and pick up a new Metabo HPT 1 and 3 quarter inch 15 degree pneumatic roofing nailer for 20 bucks less. Now 269 And get a new DeWalt Tough Grip 52 piece steel hex shank screwdriver bit set for just $14.98, saving you 5 bucks. For even more ways Lowe's saves your business money, stop by the pro desk and talk to our dedicated pro team today. Whatever you need to get the job done, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offers valid through 11-6 U.S. only. Every car comes with its share of stories. That ding in your bumper when you nervously picked up a first date. How about the luxury package you got after a big promotion? Or the mileage you saved by riding your bike all summer? While you can't put a price tag on your stories, now with True Car, you can at least find out what your car's worth when it's time to sell or trade it in. Just go to True Car and simply enter your license plate number and watch how your car's details pop up. Then answer a few questions like navigation or moonroof and watch as they bump up your value. High mileage? You already knew that was going to cost you, but now you know how much it dings your wallet so you can plan ahead. 
Once you're finished, you'll get a true cash offer sent in minutes, which you can take to a local certified dealer to cash out or trade in. So when you're ready to experience a better way to sell or trade in your car, check out True Car today. True cash offer not available in all areas. Taffer's back. This is No Excuses with John Taffer. Hey, Slay. How are you, buddy? Happy Thanksgiving to you guys. Wish I was there. It's always more fun to be with you. But this will be a fun time for us. Hey, tell me about your podcast, John. So I started about 12 weeks ago. I'm kicking butt, Sway. It's, it's, uh, I'm running about a quarter of a million to 300,000 downloads a month. And, and I did it on Podcast One. And I'm, I'm really having fun with it, man. I've never done anything like this before. Really I'm fun. Good, I, see, I see why you love doing it. Well, you know, I, I'm actually a radio guy, so I, I still see it as because um, Sirius is satellite and it's in your car. Yep. I don't see it quite like a podcast because of the, 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 the on-air callers and the, the, you know, the traffic of guests we have. But, um, but it's similar in the sense that it's the same reward in the end, the ability to communicate with people, express yourself, speak your mind. You know, yeah. poke at folks, see what's on their mind, all, all that stuff. I think it appeals to all of us in a way. But I guess we're natural orators. It is, but you know, we also don't have the restrictions that TV puts on us in, in these formats, which is great. You can uh-huh. do so. So you know, I love you, and, and we've had a nice friendship these past few years. I want to yeah. really learn how you became Sway, because uh, uh, it's an amazing story for young people. Sway, and it's a really inspirational story. And I know you started as a rapper and a performer in San Francisco on Pier 39, right? That's where it all started for you. Yeah. Um, How you old know, were you? In the, in the late 80s, early 90s, um, hip-hop have kind of really became, in, at least in our circles, in our, in our, in, in our community, that became a mainstay. It became a major threat. And it was interesting because it was like... Um, while mainstream America was, you know, talking about, you know, whatever was on the top of the mind at that time, uh, which really wasn't represent- representative of what was going on in our lives in East Oakland, you had hip-hop that was telling a whole totally different story about the world abroad, about the community, about the country, about the, uh, the consciousness of the people in my, in my environment. So when I was coming up, I was trying to really – find a way of uh, just getting things off my chest as a young man in Oakland, and rap became the best way to do it. So how and old were so, you when you started on Pier 39? When I was, um, I, I actually came to Pier 39 um, 13, 14, and friends of mine who were in a breakdancing crew called uh, Flynamic Force were actually breaking on that pier and making money. And I would see them over there making money and entertaining. And so, um, when we got in high school, those, uh, the same friends, we decided to uh, form a rap group because breaking had kind of died down a little bit. This was in the late 80s. Yep. And and, um, and it just seemed like the natural progression was to form a rap group. We already had the entertaining prowess. For me, John, I'm going to tell you the honest to God truth. It was when I was growing up, I thought I wanted to be uh, somebody who studied um, culture and history. I wanted to go into archaeology. And then I liked natural sciences. This is all in elementary. By the time I was in junior high, I thought I wanted to um, become an, uh, go into athletics because I ran track. 
when I was in high school, I thought, man, perhaps I want to go into law and I want to uh, go to Hastings Law School in Northern California. But none of these things that I be- thought I could do, I don't think I really committed to a belief that I could actually do it just because of the environment I was in. I hadn't conquered that um, the uh, ability to just kind of not mentally get in my own way. Um, and I got sidetracked with hip hop. So when I was young, I loved archaeology and I took cultural anthropology courses and stuff. I love that shit. So, so, so you were really into cultures and and history and and trying to understand why we all are the way we are. That was something that was important to you. Exactly. That was important to me. Um, and I thought, here's the thing for me, what rap did when I first started hearing groups like Run DMC or I heard groups yeah. like NWA or the Ghetto Boys, yep. what what it fascinated me about those groups was they were giving me an inside view of uh, Houston when it came to the Ghetto Boys and what they liked in Houston, the kind of foods they ate, the kind of cars they drove, the kind of clothes they wore, they wore their slang, all of these different things went from I learned about L.A. through N.W.A., you know, and them talking about, you know, uh, the police uh, relationships with the community, talking about, you know, the court system, talking about gang life. You know, we didn't have gangs where I was from in Oakland, so we learned about Crips and Bloods. You know, when I listened to groups like um, Tribe Called Quest, um, I learned about Queens, New York. I thought New York was just one big place. So hip-hop for me became a teacher. And that then drew drew me closer to the culture was being this teacher. So when I started rapping, I also wanted to teach. And the things I wanted to teach people about was injustice and um, and talk about global politics and then talk about local politics and uh, and then also I want to hold tr- uh, true to the traditions of hip hop to be an innovator to have your own voice to have your own look. Don't do anything like anybody else did, or you would be a biter. You would be a follower, you know. Yeah. And and so when when I start pursuing the rap thing, uh, we we made some local success. My partner King Tech and I, um, and we kept the group name Flynamic Force from when the breakdancing era. We just transferred it to the rap group, and um, and it forced me to learn about. You know, I was trying to get a record deal. I couldn't get a record deal. The majority of the business was in New York. I was in the Bay Area. And so it forced us to learn how to do things independently. And by doing so, we started taking courses on um, how to manage, how to market, how to distribute in the music business, how to manufacture, how to package, how to brand. And uh, we learned where to make the lacquers, you know, that creates the the um, – the prototype um, wax that you use that they burn all the other wax so you can create singles from it. We learned how to make cassette tapes and we learned how to make DVDs. What we well, also so, learned was so, that... So, go ahead. So, Sway, you understood that show business was business. You got that and, at a young age. I, and I learned it the hard way. I learned it by getting doors shut in my face. I learned it by not finding a company that had enough faith in what we were doing to invest and sign us as a group. I learned it by having the only outlet of getting this done or having my music being heard is to do it myself, which at that time was seemed unlikely and not available, but we learned that it was likely and we learned that it was available. 
And so by doing that, I learned the mechanics, the back-end mechanics of the music business, which made me not want to be a, a artist and not make, made me not want to be a front man. I didn't want to be the rapper no more. I wanted to become the person that protected the rapper. You know what's fascinating? And, is you know there are people that get into that music uh, into rap or, or entertainment for ego all they want to do is stand on stage get all the accolades make the money but they don't want to do the hard work you on the other hand got your hands dirty you went in and did the shit that's not fun to do you know and learn the things that don't feed your ego but you learned how to feed your wallet <laughs> instead uh-huh. of your ego by learning that stuff Sway, think yeah. of all your peers who take the opposite approach, man. They take that ego approach, right? Mm-hmm. Not the hard work yeah. approach. And then and then their fame is so short-lived even if they get there because the substance isn't there. Yeah. Are you still very involved in all the business aspects of your brand? Absolutely. This, here's the big secret about me is once I learned about the mechanics of the music business and learned how distribution, marketing, promotions, radio, and retail works, um, my partner, King Tech, and I start producing groups and putting it through a label we had called All City Productions and selling projects independently. Now, we would sell 3,500, 5,000, 7,500 of them, but we were selling them at, um, at a wholesale price to a distributor who would then turn around and sell it to a retailer. The thing is, we could set our own price point, and they would determine what they sold to the retailers by that. So if I wanted to sell a cassette, that cost me a dollar seventy-five to make. I would sell it to the distributor for six fifty. He would then turn around and sell it to the uh, retailer, who would sell it to the consumer for ten dollars. I'm still making six fifty on every ten-dollar tape that's sold. Where in the music business, when you sign to a record company to a twelve-point deal, you're really making uh, about ten percent if you're lucky on the dollar, which really equates to about after they take away. Um, free goods and all of that, you might be making seven cents on a dollar. You know, um, in those cases, the label and your agent both make more than we do in those cases. Exactly. And so when I learned that, John, I took that mentality in everything I did. Then I got into radio. I won an uh, opportunity to be on a radio station. My partner and I, who have already been performers, we've already put out music, knew how to entertain during this radio show called The Wake Up Show which was um, on at nighttime, but it was a, a double entendre to wake people up to information they didn't know. And on that show, we talked about social injustice, we talked about the music business, and we broke a lot of new artists. And some of those new artists turned out to be the Wu-Tang Clan, Nas, Notorious B.I.G., Biggie Smalls, Tupac, Jay-Z, you know, all of those different kind of artists came through our show. Our show became syndicated, so it became the biggest um, hip-hop show of its kind at that time because we were syndicated in San Francisco. We chased the syndication. We syndicated in L.A., Philly, Chicago, uh, Virginia, and then overseas. We were syndicated in the West Indies, and we were syndicated in Japan and, um, and all these different places. So we, we created a really powerful platform. You know what's interesting From about that, you? You're you know, a very we, gracious guy, Sway. And I bet Karen would agree with this. You know, you, uh, uh, you've you made other stars. You step out of the spotlight and you let them step in. And you're cool with that. Were you always this gracious with the spotlight? Um, I think I probably, I've been this, I've been humble. 
because I've been blessed. You know, John, I grew up the youngest of three in a single-parent household. I watched my mother go to school. I watched my mother take jobs. I watched my mother struggle to keep food on our table. She had help sometimes, a lot of times, from my grandparents, her parents, but that wasn't an everyday thing. Um, I watched her get off of public assistance on her own. Uh, we were on welfare for a brief time. I watched all of this, and then I grew up in Oakland where I watched uh, a, a lot of my friends get killed and or go to jail. And so when I started seeing light in this, through this hip-hop culture in this business, I felt like I got, I'm blessed. I got over, or they didn't get me. Um, and up. while I'm you here, I'm not taking any of this for granted because I know it could be a lot worse. And when I start seeing myself going astray in my mentality, I remember those things, that adversity uh, that we face coming up in this game. And I remember, too, John, to be honest with you, I got me and my partner, King Tech, had a local song that did really well called Follow For Now. And I was so happy that that song was successful in Northern California. Uh, and I realized I was just as happy when we first played a song by Nas called Live at the Barbecue. And because of that song being played on a big radio station, he got success. The success felt the same for me. I, if it wasn't coming directly to me, it was coming to my brother. And even though if I didn't know a lot of them, we met through this culture. And so success, your success, John, is my success. So the fact that you're so successful and you and I have gotten to know each other over the past couple of years, when I see you winning, I feel like it's a victory for me. And I carry that mentality with all of this stuff. You know, uh, I have. We, we haven't even gotten into the MTV days. I'm giving you the 90s. Oh, you I'm know. Just start, I'm, I'll just you my know. next question. But, but Sway, you're incredibly gracious. And, and uh, uh, because of that, and, and I guess your upbringing, this humble approach that you have, you've created a lot of success around you. You're a catalyst of success. You've made other people's lives better, man. That, and that's freaking cool as hell. And you don't even realize you're doing it when you do it. It's just who you are. All you're doing is dealing with day to day. But that's deep, man. And, and that's something you should be really, really proud of. Okay, I got to ask you a question. MTV yeah. starts. Now you, you get into the middle of the MTV craze. Your timing was unbelievable, right? Right in the early yeah. days. How did yeah. that happen? Yeah. MTV came about um, around 1999. Um, because of the success of the radio show and all the artists we, we helped launch their careers in the early 90s, a lot of record companies then returned to us and offered us production deals. So in 1998 or so, we had an artist by the name of Eminem come up to our show. Uh, he was unsigned at that time, uh, and we kept putting him on the show every week so people would get to know him and get him exposure. It was on the radio, the biggest radio station on L.A., and it was also we were syndicated around the country. So the dude got real popular really fast. And then he ended up cutting a deal with Dr. Dre and, and, and Jimmy Iovine over at Interscope Records. And I remember the day he came to my house and said, because we were recording music with him, and he came to our house and, and said, hey, man, before I record, man, I got, I got something to tell you, man, because we were going to put some music out on him. He said, well, you know, man, I met with Dr. Dre, and the dude wanted to sign me, and so it looks like I'm going to be going that route. And he told us the day he signed with Dr. Dre, 
and he um, and he went in and and made a song and that we put up. We ended, ended up putting on a compilation project with Interscope Records. Interscope gave us a deal because maybe five or six artists that they signed were discovered on my radio show. Interscope had a relationship with MTV because they had Gwen Stefani, they had you know Death Row, they had all all these U2, all these successful acts that MTV played. MTV was looking for people to come in and you know create new shows around, and that's youth youth driven and the whole nine, and they wanted to do something in hip hop culture. And David Saslow, who was the the rep, the video rep for Interscope, who dealt with MTV, said, hey, man, if you do a hip-hop show, you got to get these guys playing tech from the West Coast. <laughs> and and, he, and they was like, what? Huh? Man, these dudes, they got concert tours. They break artists. They do merchandising. They really help elevate culture. They really push culture. And MTV John called me three times that year. Uh, the first two times, I said no. I was like, I was not interested. I thought MTV at that time was really pop culture related. I didn't get out. it. I was kind of, yeah, I was kind of militant. Yep. And then by the third time, I had walked away from our main station in L.A. because they wanted us to compromise the music we, we were playing and told me if you didn't compromise the music, you have no place here. So we quit. And because we quit, that hurt our syndication because you needed a big market station. And MTV called that third time. I said, well, maybe this is why they call it. <laughs> maybe <laughs> I shouldn't close this door of opportunity on myself. And I said, you know what? Sure. They said, we'll move you to, we want to move you to New York. I said, if you move me to New York, I manage, I manage artists. I do radio. None of this can interfere with those things. And they agreed to it. And I told them I don't want to be a VJ. So, uh, because I thought that was corny and, um, they put me, they said, what about the news department? And I said, well, if I could talk about real issues in a real way, let's do it. And I came in through MTV News and didn't understand how big the platform was because I was all about hip-hop in the underground. But yeah. when I made my appearance on MTV, I then started understanding the world abroad a little differently. You know, I started seeing outside of that box, and I wanted to kind of find ways to bring understanding to the mainstream world of what this hip-hop culture really was and not how the media was portraying it, and I wanted to be a living example of it. So that's wow. why the graciousness, the, the humility, I never would use slang in the first years I was on MTV. I wanted to make sure we were articulate and how we told stories and how we did interviews. My objective was to make rap artists uh, expose their intelligence as opposed to the way they've been interviewed in the past where it just focused on the sensationalized things that happen in their life. And so I, I set a precedent early of what you can expect from me. And then from then I was like, I don't want to be pigeonholed. Let me sit down with Blink-182. Let me sit down with Bono from U2. Let me sit down with Linkin Park. Let me sit down with Creed. Put the guy that you least expect to connect with them in a room with them and see what magic we could create. And MTV stood, man, they never stood in the way of anything I wanted to do. You know, they very, So you and I share never, something that's, you, that's pretty powerful. Huh? You and I yeah. share our, this, uh, this authenticity together. I've shut my show down, my TV show down, three or four times when producers tried to fake it. You quit wow. the radio station when they tried to compromise who you are. 
I think yeah. that, that, that Sway, you know, the, the core of your success is your honesty with yourself and your audience. You are incredibly authentic. And, you know, one of the things that was amazing to me is you eventually wound up not renewing your MTV deal either yeah. by your own choice. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, and that was. Be- so, Go ahead. So, so you know what else was fascinating? I have a lot of friends that are in music business and they always tell me, you know, I could be standing in a street corner with with. A, a, a music star, and people drive by and they'll say, hey, Taffer, but they'll never scream his name. And they always say, see, they know my music, but they know your face. When you moved from, from, from producing and, and making rap, now you're on TV. How did that impact having your face out there like that? Was that a life changer, Sway? Uh, absolutely. Man, that's a great question, John. Nobody's ever asked me that. Um and it's hard to, you can relate to it because you do your own shows now, and now you probably travel the world and people yell at you. <laughs> yep, <laughs> you know, yep. they recognize you, they love you, they, they know your style. You can relate to this. When MTV, when I came here, it was at the end of 2000, September 2000. So in September 2000, you had the P. Diddy trial with J-Lo. I don't know if you remember that. I do. Um, you had... Um, NSYNC, Backstreet Boys, Christina Aguilera, Creed, Blink-182, Linkin Park. It was like pop culture at its apex. Yep. Um, it, was on, it was live TV, the only platform of its kind um, that reached mainstream America and mainstream Earth. Um, and here comes this guy who had locks in his hair, wrapped up, looked like a roster, but spoke you know, intelligently um, uh, and not use broken English or didn't, you know, speak in a, didn't spoken, spoke the king's language, yep. so to yep. speak. Um, I had no idea how huge the reach of MTV as a youth network was at that time. And I was flattered every time someone approached me and said they recognized me from some work that they saw me do on MTV. It wasn't the name as much as it was the way I looked and the quality of work because I treated, you know, I treated it with uh, seriousness. I treated it with respect. Um, I, I, I wasn't always smiles, which most people are, and I didn't always say cliche things, which most people did at that time. And all of those things, I think, uh, help people identify who I was, and it changed to the tune where I couldn't keep up with it, John. Like the recognition and places we went, it really affected people around me more than it affected me. So if I got it's invasive. my daughter with me or it's friends, it's invasive, Sway. It hits you yeah. all the time when people know who you are, every place you are. It's every conversation at every dinner, every place you go. You go to a friend's event, and they talk about that, you know, rather than a friend. It's 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 sort of a bummer because it's so invasive. Is that what you found? I, I've gotten used to it now, though. So, well, know, me too. Back, but it sucked <laughs> in the beginning. The first, the first ten years, it took a while to deal with, but I dealt with it graciously. I tried to sign something different on every autograph. I tried to smile different in every picture. Yeah. So now but you, you know what you it is. Actually, Sometimes you got shit that goes on in your life that that's not in the public eye. Somebody's sick, maybe you're sick. You have a relationship problems. Maybe it's issues with your kid. 
you know, and it was a lot of times where I was going through some real stressful stuff behind the scenes, but in public, you got to keep that smile because it's not their fault. And I always had this mentality, well, now that you're kind of visible, this is what you kind of ask for. It comes with the territory. Just don't put yourself in positions where you're not ready to deal with it. So if I go out in public, I know it comes with the territory. I set my mind for that, and it's never, it's never really a problem unless you get disrespectful. I, you know, I'm the same way. I want to give everybody that moment. The fact that they want to spend that moment with us is about as flattering as it gets, Way. And, you know, you yeah. and I share that. So, uh-huh. so I want to talk to you about non... So when you're not listening to music or making radio or producing and working, what do you do? A few things. Um, I have a 20-year-old daughter who um, who's, goes to NYU, third-year student, uh, so she's here in New York, but she grew up in L.A. Um, so she's nearby. That's great. She's nearby. So we do a lot of daughter-daddy dates. We <laughs> go to events together. Last week we went to a Wu-Tang Clan 25th anniversary party together. Um, she interns with Sony, so a lot of events. Um, we Our worlds are starting to uh, mesh now, and it's really the most beautiful thing because she's discovering the business that I came up in and, I think early in her life she didn't fully understand what I did, how I did it, and who I am to to the business. And in recent years, it's starting to come back to her. And the way things come back is from a very respectful place. Oh, your dad is really cool. Or your dad did this for me. Or your dad is this person. And so I try to spend as much time as I can with her because she's it's a funny. young lady and she's in that real developmental stage. Uh, also, so my daughter is in, in is in the alcohol business, in the liquor business. So so really? it's the same thing for me. You know, people would say, boy, your father's right. Your father's really. And, and of course, it's wonderful because they're making it on their own sway. But her last name, your last name means something mm-hmm. now to her. And she probably never quite understood the meaning of her last name, your credibility and career to her until she got in that place, did she? But, you know, I think it's, and congratulations on that, man. That's a beautiful thing. And, it, and it's great. Both I'm sure, and you can answer this for me. One of the things I appreciate about it is for years, man, I was a little concerned about I worked so much that, uh, and I, I always had joint custody of my daughter. But we were, I was bi-coastal, so I could only see her on the weekends or once a month at one point. And I hope that it didn't hurt her developmental years as a as a as a kid, as a daughter, as a young woman, you know. And I I only hope that some of the stuff I was doing was she was taking note or it rubbed off. Man, when I see how she works and her passion and her graciousness and how she does things, it makes me proud, John. Like I'm sure you're proud of your daughter to see your daughter like initiate and execute and be professional all on her own. You ain't got a guide her now. You know, it's the me, same thing. And I was traveling around the world like you when she was younger. And I remember uh-huh. I used to do her homework with her on the phone with those curly faxes. I'd spread them all over my desk with shoes and everything, weighting them down. And obviously, you know, you stayed in touch and you kept going to see her as often as you could. I did the same. Well, now you look at it and you say, you know what? I did okay. And that's an amazing moment when you look at your little girl like that, Sway, and you say to yourself, you know what? I did okay as a father. Look at her. She's terrific. And that's no better feeling. 
that's probably our most defining thing of our entire lives, don't you think? Hey, man, I'm going to tell you something. I remember my daughter was, um, I want to say she was eight years old. And she, <laughs> you know, oh, yeah, she was. It was the first year that Hillary Clinton ran against um, Barack Obama. Yep. And remember, politics became household because of it was a woman running in, for the Democratic nomination. Yep. And you had the black man running in. Yep. So it was everywhere. And my eight-year-old daughter wanted to speak about it, and she wanted to speak to politicians, so she wanted to prepare a speech for an event that was happening in L.A. I was out of town, so her mother told me, hey, can you help her with a speech? She wants to do a speech. So I said, oh, okay. And, John, it was so interesting the way I had to, okay, how do you t tell an eight-year-old how to write a speech? I said, I don't want to write it for her. And so she asked me, what are some of the things you uh, I should talk about? I said, what's important to you? And she said, the the seals in, in, in the Antarctic, I don't want seals to be killed. Um, the environment, um, I, I want to protect the environment from global warming and, and women's rights issues. <laughs> this is an eight-year-old, right? <laughs> wow, you did so, good. So we're going through it, and, I'm, and everything. I said, I'll ask her, so why do you want to protect the seals? And she'll say it, and I, everything she said, I, I would tell her to write it down. And before she know it, knew it, she had written her whole speech. And then that weekend, she went and, and I gave her some pointers, like throw your fist in the air at the end, you'll get the crowd excited and all these different <laughs> things. And she ended up doing it. Hey, man, yep. I've never felt like I felt seeing my daughter accomplish her goal like that. And to this day, there's nothing more gratifying than seeing my child win. And it's back to even coming up in this business. always wanted to see everybody win. When it's your child that's winning, I feel so accomplished, man. I feel like we had Jesse Eisenberg on the show today, you know, the actor who played yep. Mark Zuckerberg in a social, net yep. what was a social media network, the Facebook movie. Okay, so he came on the show today, and um, one of the things he asked me was, uh, man, he first of all, he grew up watching me on MTV, and then secondly, he was like, hey, man, you were so ambitious as a, you know, when you were younger, man, when did you feel like you succeeded? How did, how did you, what did you, how did you feel about success? And I never looked at what I've been doing. Um, what I've been doing successfully, I haven't looked at as I'm a success. You know, it's just, I, I look, you know, I try to execute my visions, my dreams, the whole nine. I don't know how to look at my accomplishments as a success other than my child. <laughs> That's the only time I feel yeah. like, ooh, I'm, I'm with feeling you. it in life. When I see because, this shit she doing. <laughs> you know? um, uh, me too, completely. But aren't there those moments where you can do it intentionally? Do you ever step back and realize, look at the love and the inspiration that you've created in your life? Well, you know, I feel like the love is is mutual. So it's a, I feel like it's an even balance of you love me, I love I love you, therefore you love me. I find it um, very flattering. I find it really powerful. It's very powerful what we do, man. We got the ability to we could change the mood of somebody's day yeah, from bad cool. to good. We could change the mentality of, of, of somebody's thinking from uh, being apathetic to being proactive. 
You know, we could change, you know, the way somebody eats, the way somebody looks at life from yep. seeing that glass half full or seeing that glass half empty. Yeah, the relationships. Yeah, it's a relationship, and it's a lot. People call, hey, Sway, what's... People call our show, and it's like we met before. You know, hey, Sway, how's it going, man? And they pick up conversation like we've been on the phone since last night. And that's, that's a lot of power to have, and I promise you, John, I respect that power. I, I don't try to abuse it if I feel like... I've gotten to the point where we live in a, 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 a space now where you have to have an opinion and comment on everything, even if it's a rumor. You gotta have something you could fill up the time and the space with. Man, I don't even, if I know a celebrity has done something that probably was kind of foolish, I very seldom, even even if it's an easy throwaway comment, I don't even want to talk about that person's foolishness much. You kind of have you're just, to. But you're not you a know? negative dude, you're just not. I, it's just hard when I do it. And sometimes I feel it like, man, that was stupid, but I'd rather not say it. So getting you, you know, on Bar Rescue and throwing stuff at chefs is probably not a, not on the menu for you. No, 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 no. That's not on the menu. Oh, hold on one second. Y'all need the room? Five minutes? Okay, yeah. They're going to kick me out this conference room in five minutes, John. All right, buddy. So listen, uh, uh, look, you know, I love you. We have a nice friendship together. I wanted everybody to hear your story because of two things. One, you are incredibly gracious. You're really a giving guy this way. And even when I try to say, look at what you've created, look at the brand, the engagement, you still step back from that and say, you know, you put it upon the others that have done it for you rather than putting it on yourself. You know, I think you're an amazing example for your peers. I think you're an amazing example for people that come out of the hip hop culture and want to be something in life. You've done it right, Sway, in every way, buddy. And my hat's off to you. I think the world of you, bud. Oh, I appreciate you, John. Thank you kindly, man. I can't express how much that means coming from you, uh, knowing your work, and then having having the opportunity to get to know you over the past couple of years. And just I love when you come up to the show. If you didn't have shit to promote, man, you always welcome to come up there and hang out. Our, our listeners love when you come on the show, man. But coming from you, man, now I feel like a success. Thank you. <laughs> uh, but yeah, we got to do that party in Vegas soon, right? Yeah, let's get it, baby. I'm ready. All right, All right bro. Take care. Support for No Excuses with John Taffer comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans, America's premier home purchase lender. Let's talk about buying a home. It can be one of the most important purchases you'll ever make. But today's fluctuating interest rates can leave you with unexpected higher payments, which can turn a great experience into an anxious one. That's why Quicken Loans created their exclusive buying power process. Here's how it works. They check your income assets, and credit to give you a verified approval. This gives you the strength of a cash buyer, making your offer more attractive to sellers. Once verified, you qualify for their exclusive rate shield approval. They'll lock your interest rate for up to 90 days while you shop for your new home. Then once you've found the one, if rates have gone up, your rate stays the same. But if rates have gone down, you get to keep the new lower rate. Either way, you win. It's the kind of thinking you'd expect from America's largest mortgage lender. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com slash Taffer. 
Rate shield approval only valid on certain 30-year purchase transactions. Additional conditions or exclusions may apply based on Quicken Loans data in comparison to public data records. Equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, nmlsconsumeraccess.org number 3030. If there's one thing I've learned about my friendship uh, with, with Sway Calloway, it's that humility can go a long, long way, especially in a business where there isn't a lot of humility. And uh, that said, it's time for my favorite part of the show. It is time for audience call-ins, call-ins, call-ins. <laughs> Casey, I need some kind of an effect. I can do that. I can put an effect on that. I mean, you get a little lazy as a producer here. I want technology. Okay. I want echo, reverb. I want it repeating, 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 repeating. That's what I want. <laughs> Who's our first caller? All right, John, so let's go over to uh, David in Overland, Missouri. He needs some advice on the power of positive thinking. David, David, you're in Overland. Why do you need to think about positive thinking? What's going on that's got you thinking uh, unpositive? Unpositive? Well, I'm at that point in my life where if I want to take my life to the next level, both professionally and personally, because I think they go hand in hand and and one, but they both be the other. It's, you know, I got stuff from my past and and it's, I like to use, I don't like to use the word negative. I like non-positive. Okay. And it's like I, I'm an adopted child, okay? Um, my my parents weren't able to get pregnant, so they adopted me. That's a, until a long story. Not to, I'm very blessed with the adopted parents I have, but they ended up having a younger, uh, ended up having a younger brother, younger sister, and I, I think, you know, I just had feelings of not fitting in, not belonging, like I don't deserve this. And it, it's I love your book. Don't bullshit yourself, because that's exactly what it is. But I, I've tried multiple techniques to try to, you know, summon that inner strength and that inner power to take my life to the uh, to the next level. And just trying to look for new techniques and, and new ways. Cause so let me ask you this, Dave. I, what is your biggest success in life so far? Uh, I, I'll be honest with you. It's, uh, I'm a recovering alcoholic and drug addict. Uh, I'm 14 years sober next month. That is an amazing accomplishment. Congratulations, buddy. How does that feel? It feels really damn good. Um, and I, I think what what to, for me what AA is 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 about improving the quality of life. And it's I've listened to that book you wrote uh, twice on the audio version, and there's a lot of similarities. A lot of what you talk about we hear around the, the tables and what the program talks about it was just uh, a different terminology or a different use of words so what you just went through was one of the most difficult challenges you'll probably ever face in your life you know that right yeah it doesn't get much harder than that so so if you can accomplish that you can accomplish so many other things think about this for a moment look at the discipline that it took for you to achieve that the commitment to yourself that it took for you to achieve that your openness to support from other people allowing you to achieve that. Fact of the matter is, Dave, you proved the last 14 months that you're a winner. No, it's 14 years. 14 years, forgive me. You proved the last 14 years that you're a winner and that every day you've overcome this. And I know you think about it often because I know it doesn't always go away so quick. It stays with you your whole life. So if you can accomplish something that is so massive, so self-changing, 
so inspirational to all the other people that can't do that, the millions and millions of people, Dave, that didn't have your inner strength, that didn't have your commitment, that didn't have your ability and your capacity to beat it. Think of the millions and millions of them. And then think about you. And think about what you've accomplished. Now, if you don't derive pride from that, there's something very wrong because you should. Now, let me take it to the next level. Because you've created that, you have now set yourself up with the greatest opportunity of your life. Right now, 14 years later, you can wake up tomorrow morning and do so many different things, can't you? Think about it. Yeah, can, yeah, I have. It's given me a new, you know, lots of new freedoms. And, I mean, stuff that I've done that... I believe it beyond my, my wildest dreams, but I just feel like there's a, something inside me that's holding me back from taking it to the next level, and I haven't figured out the right technique or the right way or what action to take to to push through that and, you know, take my life, both personal and professional, to the next to the next level. Cause I, I'll tell you what I think. I know I'll tell you what I think. I think that you were so quick to tell me that you're adopted that that becomes the excuse that you choose to use when you fail on other things. And let me finish. I had four fathers growing up. Three of them beat me. My mother beat Damn. me when I was a child, broke my arm. So I was an abused child who moved from house to house with multiple fathers and had a very, very difficult childhood. I never talk about it. I never use it as an excuse. It's gone. It made me stronger. It made me who I am today. It's not a weakness. It's not an excuse. It's who you are. And I would really suggest that you take that completely out of your vocabulary. When you stop talking about it, you stop thinking about it. The fact that you are an orphan, I believe, has no impact upon your tomorrow. It only impacts your yesterday. Get rid of it, man. Get rid of it. You are sober 14 years. You are obviously articulate. You are obviously committed. You are smart and you are disciplined. That shit doesn't matter. Look forward. Don't look back. The fact that you were adopted and your siblings weren't has no relevance to your tomorrow. No, I, I agree. That's something that, uh, you know. But I, you don't I agree because you to. said it to me first thing on this call. So, so now, now that you heard it, get it out of your vocabulary, get it out of your life. Start, stop saying, I dream to be this. Start saying, my goal is to be this. Because you've taken yeah. dreams of becoming sober and turned them into goals and turned them into results. Now do that with the rest of your life. Dave, you know how to do this. You've proven it to yourself before. Go, do it, buddy. I'm, gl- I'm glad you brought up goals because I'm terrible at setting goals. Well, set some. Set one for tomorrow. Go on an interview. Go talk to someone. Do something tomorrow, just like you did for the last 14 years to make yourself better. And don't look back at that orphan excuse BS, buddy. You're too smart. From talking to you, I can hear it. Go. Do what you got to do. Get on the phone. Make a difference today, okay? I got okay. you. So with, Take care. with like setting goals. Yep. Sorry. <laughs> All right, John, let's head over to uh, John in Toronto, Canada. Big fan of uh, No Excuses, big fan of Bar Rescue, and needs you to settle a Bar Rescue uh, bet with a friend. Oh, boy, John, you're going to put me on thin ice here, huh, buddy? 
I gonna put you right on the spot, Taft. How you doing, my friend? I'm doing good. Nice to talk to you, John. You live up in Toronto? I'm up in Toronto. If you're ever in Toronto and need a spy for bar rescue, uh, Casey has my details. Okay. Uh, you know, years ago, I, I did. Uh, I did most of the underground in Toronto many years ago as a consultant. And there's the underground oh, I there. No I did idea. the Sheridan Hotel, I remember. And uh, Old Queen Bess was one of the places we did in Remington's. But I spent a lot of time in Toronto, and it's one of my favorite cities in North America, buddy. You live in a great place. I agree. They should put a plaque down there in the underground. Uh, <laughs> but I got a question. A friend and I got a question. We're big fans of the show. Love Pirate's Tavern. One of the most <laughs> controversial episodes. Am I right? Absolutely. One of the toughest weeks of my life, too, John. But here's the question. When you turn that place into corporate bar and grill, it seems to me like you were trying to antagonize them a bit, you know, to make them go against everything they believe in. And generally, I think you're pretty spot on with business management. But I wonder how you can try to keep morale afloat, not to use a pirate pun, uh, when you're making people do everything they hate. How, how can you expect that to possibly turn out well? That's a great question. Uh, uh, you know, when I started with them, you got to realize they could not speak non-pirate. When I went to look in their cars in the parking lot, they only had pirate clothes. When I talked to them, they were pirates 24 hours a day. This was their life. When I talked to them about the pirate community and how they were going to make money, they told me of a great, huge pirate community on Facebook. And stuff. There, were there were 160 members, John. So I said to myself, okay, these people are in the extreme pirate category. If I try to move them into the extreme corporate category, maybe they'll land in the middle and be normal. <laughs> right. So they were so extreme on one side that I felt I had to go more extreme on the other side again, hoping that they would land in the middle somewhere. Also, they were surrounded by three huge office buildings. And the concept, you know, you don't get to show a lot on TV. The concept was really cool. I mean, the menus were post-it notes and yellow pads, and uh, uh, the uh, uh, drink orders were on pink phone message pads. And there was a lot of very cool things about that concept that we didn't get to show on television. But you're exactly right. It wasn't too antagonize them as much as to move them so much in one direction that when they moved back, they wouldn't go all the way back to being a pirate. But, in fact, they did, as you know. They rebelled like pirates. They rebelled like pirates, and, and the next day, I don't know if you saw it online, the next day they took the sign down, went out into the woods and sat around the circle and burned it and, and did these pirate curses and cursed me uh, 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 because they thought I was an anti-pirate or whatever the hell that would be. <laughs> well, was that was episode. a strange episode, and You're I must tell you, they, they could not speak. Bar Refuge? Yes, they opened up a place called Bar Refuge, as I understand it. Now, I don't know if they did. I know that they were going to because I had them on Back to the Bar, Tracy. And uh, uh, they were going to open a place. And, you know, in St. Petersburg, Florida, you can't argue with it down there. It's just in downtown Baltimore, Silver Spring, Maryland, next to the Discovery Channel TV office building. It didn't make a lot of sense. Right. Anyway, that was that was a trip. If you thought it was bizarre to watch it, imagine what it was like to live it that week. And one of my favorite lines of all Rescue episodes was in that episode. Do you know what that line was? What's that? One of my favorite lines of any bar rescue was in that episode, and I'm guessing you could probably tell me what that line is. Do you know? I can't remember. I like uh, I like when Juiciano was going on about his burning bits. But what's your favorite line? 
oh, do you want to be a pirate or do you want to send your daughter to college? <laughs> right. Good advice. Sage advice yes. from Taffer. Anyway, you should Google it. See if they ever open down there and let us know. I will. I'll head down there if I'm ever in Florida and report back. Take care, John. Stay warm this winter up there, buddy. I will. Take care. Go Golden Knights, eh, buddy? Absolutely. We had, we had a good win last night. Take care. <laughs> All right, John. Speaking of the Golden Knights, uh, let's go over to Sean, who's in Dallas, Texas, who recently visited the Knights Arena and had some observations. He wanted to uh, run past you. Sure. Hey, John. How's it going? Good. How are you? Good. I, I actually uh, visited uh, uh, the Knights uh, two games last year in December, and I'm actually a Sharks fan, but I live in Dallas. And I went out there, and like it kind of uh, tripped me out a little bit because I was expecting it, like a new arena to be like you know like have like four entrances like you know like the new arenas do but they have it like one main entrance yeah, and it, it just kind of tripped me too. out but when, as I was walking back out of the arena you know it came to me like why they did that so like coming off especially coming from the strip like getting off the bus you have to yep. pass by all those you know like the stores and you know pop-ups on your way to the arena and I thought that was very like you know business savvy and I, I understand why they got it and that arena is like you know it's really loud and cool, like it was a really cool experience. I was well, wondering it's, as a businessman if yeah. you picked up on that. It's very different than, than uh, any other arena energy-wise. But you're right. You know, in Vegas, we always design casinos so that uh, uh, if you want to get to a restaurant, you got to walk through the casino to get there. And great hotels are always built that way. You can never get from point A to point B without going through a casino. But when they built T-Mobile Arena, they built that beautiful park in front, which has all the restaurants and a live stage outside, and they have displays and food trucks and all sorts of things out there. But in order to get to the front door of T-Mobile Arena, you have to go through the park or through the parking lot, and in many cases, that connects you to one of the casinos. Uh, but you know, understand, you know, we built the Golden Knights for locals, but we also built the Golden Knights Arena and brought the team here as a tourist attraction because that's what Vegas is. Las Vegas has no farms. We have no industrial industries. Uh, uh, you know, we have no big insurance industries or financial services. This entire city is gaming and hospitality. And the Knights have been a, a great addition. But what do you think of the energy of the game and the fans? Oh, it was it was great. Like actually, the two games I went to, uh, one they went to overtime and one, and the other they won in a shootout. So it was really, it was just really cool, exciting experience. Yeah. Overall, well, any, like it, I, I thought it was really great. It's really fun, and those that are hockey fans, it's a blast to come to Vegas and watch your team play against the Knights. It's a lot of fun. It's a great excuse for a weekend in Vegas. And thanks for calling, buddy. I'm glad you had a good time. And there's nothing better than hockey. Hockey, to me, is about as exciting as it gets. And uh, even this year, we're not doing as well, the Knights, of course, but it's still been ex exciting as hell, and it's there's no better ticket in town. All right. Well, thanks, John. Take care, buddy. All right, John, let's go over to uh, Chris, who is in Chicago, uh, has a, another bar rescue question for you. Chris. How are you doing, John? Hey, Chris. How are you? Hey, how are you doing, John? Good, thanks. Chris? Hey, John. How you doing, man? I'm doing great. How are you, buddy? Good. Uh, big fan of Bar Rescue. I've uh, been watching it forever. Um, also heard you on Pardon My Take this morning. Um, <laughs> I was kind of wondering, that you was know, just I happened to be in New York last these. Friday, so I called the guys and stopped over. That was completely unplanned at Pardon My Take. Oh, really? Yeah, we oh, just happened awesome. to be in New York, so I called Big Cat and I stopped by. <laughs> 
Um, so I was kind of wondering, since you've done so many of these, is there a, a point during the rescue where you kind of know um, if it's going to be a hero or a zero? Can can you kind of meet the owner and walk around the bar and, and instantly know, you know, someone call my wife, tell her I'm not going to be home for dinner, this is, this is going to be a long one? Or, you know, <laughs> is it a stress test when... Um, um, when the bartenders can't make two drinks at a time, you're like, man, we, we really got a lot of work to do here. Um, is, is there always a point in the episode where you kind of know whether it's going to be successful or not, or maybe, you know, yeah, three months down the line, the bar is closed down and you, you never expected that to happen. Um, I've always kind of wondered, uh, well, if you on the way know out, as I the episode know. progresses. On the way out, I always know, Chris, you know, I always know if they're really? going to be successful. I can just sense their attitude about the work that we've done. On the way in, you know, you'll be surprised. And it isn't just the bar rescue. And I've done 189 bar rescues, buddy. So that's an awful lot of times walking in. But, yes, I can. And here's what I typically look for. If the owner sucks, is there somebody else there that can take control of the place? If there's somebody there who I can elevate to take control, even though the owner sucks, I got a chance of success. If there's nobody there who can do much of anything, that's when I make that phone call. I, I'm going to be late tonight. And those are the toughest right, right, right. But, you know, we also deal with, and a lot of people don't realize with the, the level of this, I do design the bar myself. I do design it that night after recon. Uh, uh, I have about 20 minutes to design it. In any event, so, uh, the challenge in many of these isn't as much the people. Sometimes that comes together nicely. It's getting a damn thing designed and built and getting the materials there, getting it built in 36 mm-hmm. hours. So all of that stuff is going on at the same time, Chris. That's the pressure for me because mm-hmm. yeah. I have to deal with the physical design, the place, the city, the employees, the recipes, make sure we can get the products it is a freaking pressure cooker. It is bar rescue yeah. is the toughest work I've ever done in my life. It is. Yeah. Uh, I've opened some of the biggest nightclubs in the world in my days and resorts and hotels. Yeah. Nothing is harder than bar rescue. You ever uh, you ever apologize to anyone off uh, off camera? You ever really laid I, into someone and you kind of realize right after you're like, man, I really no, I really let no, them have it. I don't know if. I I uh, never I never talk to anybody off camera. Nonetheless, apologize. I never say a word right. to anybody off camera ever, and that's what makes that's bar awesome. rescue real. The second I'm finished, yeah. I walk out of the room, and they never see me again until there's a camera there. So every wow. word that I say to them is on camera. There's never apologies yeah. behind the scene. I don't do anything I think I should apologize for. To be honest with you, they're the ones mm-hmm. who are desperate. They're the ones who've called me. Yeah. They're the ones who've said, you're my last chance. So what am I supposed to do? Be nice <laughs> right. and, and fail? Yeah. No, I got to be aggressive. Yeah. So, so, you know, yeah. uh, I'm doing what I believe is right. And I've never apologized to anyone uh, uh, relating to anything mm-hmm. involved. Rescue. So what would your job have been if you weren't in the industry? If you weren't working for a bar or a restaurant, what was your, what was your dream job kind of growing up? Well, I was a, a resort manager when I was young, and I was in a hotel business, and I really loved being in a hotel business. Uh, when I was mm-hmm. really young, I loved cultural anthropology and archaeology and things like that when I was young. When I went to college, yeah. I took political science was my major. And I really thought mm-hmm. that, you know, I, I have good communication skills. So I always thought I could be a good politician, but I'm glad I didn't go in that business. Look at yeah. what's going on today. But, uh, awesome. you know, I've always loved people. You know, and I've always mm-hmm. felt this, uh, uh, I derive great pleasure from inspiring and helping people. And to mm-hmm. me, when Bar Rescue ends, and I mean what I'm about to say, Chris, when Bar Rescue ends, two things sort of happen. I get a check and I get a hug. And these days, the hug mm-hmm. means more to me than a check, and that's the truth. Yeah. 
Absolutely. And awesome. uh, a lot of people don't hear what's said in that hug because we wear microphones on our chests. So when we hug right. each other, the microphones are covered. Nobody hears it. The things that the owners yeah. say to me during that hug is very inspirational. They thank me for mm-hmm. screaming at them. They thank me for being the father that they didn't have or should have had. And uh, at the end, there's never a reason for an apology because it's, it's always a really positive thank you environment. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. There you go. Perfect. So, and I, I think that's why we're on TV so long, Chris, because I keep it honest. And everybody sees everything that happens. There's no side conversations with the owners. There's no apologies off screen. None of that stuff happens. Absolutely. I, keep, I, keep, yeah. I keep it real. And hopefully that's why yeah. you're watching. So keep watching. By the way, Absolutely. this week, this week, and I'm not sure if this is a record or not, but right now, today, Monday through Friday, Bar Rescue is on TV four to five hours a day every morning. We have a mm-hmm. marathon on Friday. I think 14 hours, and we have a marathon on Sunday, 14 hours. I was sitting home mm-hmm. doing the math. This week, you're going to love this, Chris. This week, Bar Rescue is on television 57 hours. <laughs> it is the most broadcasted <laughs> show on television. 57 episodes are on this week. So if anybody wants to catch up on Bar Rescue, this is the week to right. do it. But I believe I mean, Sunday, probably. Sunday scares every time, and I think Thursday, Friday, it's probably going to do the same. It's- no better yep. show to watch when you're hungover than Sunday than uh, Bar Rescue. Well, thanks, buddy. And, and keep watching, and I appreciate it. And, and I appreciate everybody watching this week. It's really fun to be the most broadcasted person on television this week. So Absolutely. have a great Thanksgiving, Chris. Doing, Take man. Care, we all appreciate it. All right. That's it. You know, KC, you did a pretty good job this week. I'm pretty <laughs> impressed. We had some good callers. We talked about some pretty powerful business. I beat up my first caller. Right, who was using his adoption as an excuse for the rest of his life, which makes no sense. He was. He really was. And uh, hopefully we set people up for a great Thanksgiving. But before my podcast next week, do me a favor. Let's all let it go this week. Let the politics go. Let the family stresses go. Let the work at stress go. Have a great Thanksgiving. Let's take two days, Casey, to completely decompress. I think we need it after this election, the fires in California, the shootings. We all need to just take a deep breath and decompress for a couple of days. you agree? I do. I do. And that's what Thanksgiving is all about. I thank you all for what you've given to me. These past few years have been remarkable, and it's all because of you. I thank you for listening. I thank you for coming to my Facebook and social media pages. I thank you for watching Bar Rescue, and I thank you for making me feel important every day. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving. I'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to No Excuses with John Taffer on Podcast One. Download new episodes every Tuesday here on PodcastOne.com, the Podcast One app, and at Apple Podcasts. Make sure to rate and review. Pros like you know trusted brands have a hand in helping you nail the job. Start with Lowe's where you'll find those brands and savings too. Stop in today and pick up a new Metabo HPT 1 and 3 quarter inch 15 degree pneumatic roofing nailer for 20 bucks less. Now 269 And get a new DeWalt Tough Grip 52 piece steel hex shank screwdriver bit set for just $14.98 saving you 5 bucks. For even more ways Lowe's saves your business money stop by the pro desk and talk to our dedicated pro team today. Whatever you need to get the job done do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offers valid through 11.6 US only.